was, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His son used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters and eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well. Then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Inside the announcement sheet, uh, you'll find an outline that you can use as we go through our study this morning. You'll also find find a card that looks like this, and I'd like for you to pull that out just uh, for a second before we have our prayer and get into our our message this morning. As you can tell from the uh, the scripture reading this morning and the uh, the title of the the sermon up on the the screen, we're going to be thinking about grief this morning. And uh, there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, and we'll talk about that uh, some when we get to the message part, but another reason to, t- uh, to talk about grief uh, this morning is uh, we have a grief ministry, and uh, a very important ministry for our church family. And if you'll look inside of your announcement sheet, inside of the bulletin, you'll see that uh, a second group of, of individuals, members of our church family here, have have graduated from the the, the training that uh, that Ed and Gray Biggers do on a weekly basis. Uh, a second group of people have graduated from that in order to to minister to folk and and to be a companion in suffering when it comes to the various kinds of of grief that we experience in this life. And. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, there are lots of reasons that grief comes into our life. Death is, is but one, and uh, some of those are found on the front of this. And uh, if we think about grief as mainly being the loss of a loved one, we may not always recognize the fact that grief is coming into our life because of another kind of a loss or another kind of a frustration or another kind of injury. And uh, we want to make sure that, uh, that we recognize that grief comes to us from a lot of different sources. And that as a church family, in, in wanting to be um, you know, a very loving family and a, and a family that is mindful of the things that we're going through together uh, as individuals, but we go through together because we're part of a church family, 
that you realize that there's help out there and, and those that have been trained to help you through these periods of time in which grief has come into your life. On the back side of that, down at the very bottom, there's a, a little piece of information that I want to read. It says, to connect with a good grief caregiver, contact any of our ministers, and primarily that would be myself or Douglas Brown, or you can call the church office, or you can call Ed Biggers, and his phone number is, uh, is located here, or email goodgrief at macarthurchurch.org. And, uh, and sometimes we're, you know, we're not even going to wait for you to contact us. We're going to contact you. And we're going to say, here's this ministry that is available to you, and we would like for you, if, if, if you're willing, uh, to be a part of it. Again, it's, it's not, uh, there's no obligation to do it. But uh, I'm, we're hoping, especially after some of the things that I say about grief this morning, that we, will, that we will be a church that is not afraid of the grief that comes into our life because of the reality of pain and the reality of loss. And that we'll get through the other side of that grief whole and in, in many ways the best version of ourselves uh, coming out by God's grace. So with that in mind, that's, uh, let's think about grief this morning, but first let's pray for God to bless us. Father, we're grateful for the ways that you make us aware of your presence in this world. And sometimes it's all bright light and, and beauty, the beauty of creation. And, and we're reminded, Father, of, 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 of just how vast this universe is and, and, and how beautiful and, and, and how great the power that you possess to bring it all together. And that all of creation sings its praise to You. And we sense that when we see it. We're also thankful, Father, for all of the ways that You manifest Yourself, especially Your strength and Your peace when we go into the, the deep valleys of life in which we're surrounded by pain and we're, 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 we're sensing loss in every part of our, our being and our thinking. And, and we are tempted to think that we're going to be overrun by anguish. And we're grateful, Father, for not only the people that You raise up to, to surround us and to be our companion in suffering, but, Father, for the ways that You manifest Yourself and demonstrate Your presence in our life during that period of time. Thank You for that, Father. And as we think about the life of Job, pray that You'll give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the, uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about how our city can, can live out the ramifications and the implications of Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, of being a people of light, of people who do good deeds, who do service to other people who are kind and who are generous and who are gracious in such a way that we don't get the thanks, but God gets the glory. And uh, next week, we're going to be looking at Romans. As uh, uh, many of you know, uh, we're going to be looking for the next three months at Romans, not only in our sermons, but also in our Bible classes. And if you've not uh, made it a point this year to be a part of a Bible class, let me encourage you to, to dedicate yourself to being here at 915 every Sunday morning and finding an adult class that you can be a part of as we go through the study of this very, very important book in the New Testament. But this morning, as a kind of a, a transition between what we've been looking at and what we're going to look at next week, we want to think about grief. The beginning of 2015, for many in our church family, has been difficult. 
It's already been a, a year that is marked with loss. This past Wednesday night in our Bible classes, during the prayer requests, we read the names of six people in our church family that in the last week, in the last seven to ten days, have experienced the loss of a loved one. Four of these lost a mother. One of these lost a grandmother. And one of these lost a brother. And there, as you know, are all kinds of losses that come into our life. There are rejections that we experience in this life that can bring profound sorrow. There's disappointments. There's injuries. There's all manner of, of avenue in which suffering and agony and pain and grief can enter our life. And one of the, the, the things that, that marks a church in the New Testament, and Paul is writing to the Roman church about this, is as the church is a place where people rejoice when, they, when others are rejoicing and weep when others are what? Weeping. We want to be the kind of church that weeps when others weep. We want to shoulder the burden of that kind of anxiety and that kind of, that kind of anguish. Because the normal thing for a human in a fallen world is to suffer loss. All people will suffer from a loss of one kind or another in their lifetime. Sometimes it's slow and gradual. It feels like you're losing the normal landscape of your world one inch at a time. Sometimes it's sudden and it's devastating and it's catastrophic and it's irreversible and it wreaks havoc in your life like a massive flood. There's a statement about grief that over the years has, has become very, very important to me. A fellow by the name of Joe Hale is, is the author of it. And, and Hale says very often about grief, he says, Life is about change. Change brings pain. Pain brings grief, and grief must be processed. Let me say that again. Life is about change. Change brings pain. Pain brings grief, and grief must be processed. It's that last phrase, grief must be processed, that I think it's extremely important for us to consider for a moment. That, that grief must be processed. The reason for that is the loss is not to be the defining point of your life. The loss is not to be the defining point or the defining moment in your life, but it's how you respond to that loss that can be the defining moment of your life. And that's why we turn to the Bible. You've heard me say this before. The Bible is the most realistic book in the entire world and the most realistic story about suffering in the most realistic book in the world is the story of Job that Dennis read first 12 verses just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, just as a reminder, Job is an exceptional human being. In fact, uh, the, the Bible itself says that Job is blameless and he is upright. He's a guy that fears God. He is a man that shuns evil. He's somebody that's trying to live according to God's will. He recognizes that there's a God and he wants to be obedient to that God and he orders his life according to that knowledge. And he was, in verse 3, the greatest man among all the people of the East. The Bible goes on to say that he had a wife, he had a family, he had lots of children, he had vast holdings of wealth. 
But you're not six verses into the story of Job when we're reminded that the world is not just a fallen place, but the world is a fallen and painful place that's often full of suffering and surprising anguish. Satan comes to God and wants to sift Job. And in the way that the fallen world works, there are four waves, or there are these four sources of unimaginable loss and pain that come into Job's life. Verse 13 begins with some very ominous words. One day. One day came like all the others. One day that began typical of the others, but is not going to end like any other. This day, this one day in verse 13 is going to become a nightmare. A messenger comes to Job and tells him that a, a Sabean raiding party has come and taken all of the oxen and all of the donkeys and killed all of those servants that were tending those animals. It's a great, tremendous financial loss. While that one is still speaking, another messenger comes and we're told, uh, he is told how fire fell from the sky and burned up all of the sheep and all of the human beings, the servants. The people that, that Job was responsible for killed them as well, the ones that were tending the sheep. And while he's still speaking, another messenger comes and tells how there's a Chaldean raiding party, raiding party who sweeps down, steals the camels, and kills all of the servants that are taking care of the camels. And while he's still speaking, another servant comes and gives the horrific news that in the house where all of his children were located, there was such a horrific, terrific, strong, mighty wind that hit that house that the house implodes on top of all of those children and they are gone. And Job begins to grieve. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And then chapter 2 begins on an ominous note. On another day. Satan has come and he wants to sift Job even more. He wants to strike Job himself. And so verse 7, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And Job's wife comes on the scene and in her grief over lost children, see how her husband, the man she loves, is afflicted. And she shrieks in her agony, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. I've uh, entered into a lot of people's uh, suffering over the years. And talking about their integrity always seemed, uh, especially from a, from a 21st century or a 20th century business model, talking about their integrity at a time like that seemed so inappropriate. What, what in the world does she mean by, are you still 
maintaining your integrity. She is addressing that part of Job's life that causes all the parts of his life, all of the way that he thinks and all of the things that he values and all of the things that he does, his ethic, his, all, all of the things that he knows in this life. She is addressing that part of his life that causes all of those parts to cohere and to be cohesive. In other words, she is talking about God. And she tells her husband, are you still maintaining that God, that part of your life that is at the core, that causes everything else to circle around it and to, 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 to cohere and to be uh, uh, cohesive? Curse God and die. And yet... The floodwaters of destruction have not crested. It's going to get worse. Three of his friends arrive. And Job continues to mourn and to grieve. He says in chapter 3, verse 11, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? He says in verse 20, Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure? You know you're having a blue day when you would rather die than win the lottery. And then these three friends, friends, they begin to tell him that he's only getting what he deserves. Eliphaz is representative of the group in chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. When were the upright ever destroyed? Job has lost his wealth and his health and all of his children and his wife... And his friends appear, and you think, finally, he will have companions in suffering. He will have companions in suffering, but instead, they attack his sanity. And here's where we need to step out of, of, of Job for just, just a moment. And think about the lessons of Job for the grieving. One of the, the most important lessons that, that I have ever learned about, about grief is that it's messy. We need to understand that, that grief is a messy business. We often talk about the stages of grief. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, in her book on death and dying in 1969, put together the five stages of, of grief as denial and anger and then bargaining and then depression and then acceptance. And I, I, I like those, those stages. I think the stages are good in helping us to understand the elements of grief and what it is to go through grief and to know that we're not losing our mind, but this is what it means to be a human being as we go through this period of time which we, we suffer loss. But the danger, I think, is to think that as you go from one stage to the next, that you're done with that part of it, that you'll never go into the denial stage again or the anger stage again or the bargaining stage again. Or that as you go through these stages, that, that, that somehow you're, you're, you're not going to be derailed in one way or another. 
oftentimes it's, it's not that easy. In fact, in, in my own life, what I've discovered is that grief is not linear, but messy. I wish the grief that you go through and I go through, that it's linear, that it's A, B, C, D, E, and then you're done. What I found in my own life is that grief actually works more like what's found there on the right. And as you read the book of Job, beginning with with chapter 4 and going through his conversations with those friends and then a fourth friend that shows up, and then finally with God, there are cycles of sadness and anger and bewilderment and questioning. And it's not one just after another. There are cycles of it. And Job is processing it because he has allowed himself a second thing, and that is to enter the darkness. In, in other words, mourn. In other words, mourn. Don't be stoic. God has given us our emotions, which is not the same thing as saying that we should be overrun by, by whims of raw emotion. But there, there comes a time in life when we are to mourn. Because to not mourn is somehow going to stunt us emotionally, if we do not enter into it. Margaret Mead, sociologist from a generation past, wrote something that that I think is really important. She says, when a person is born, we rejoice, and when they get married, we jubilate. But when they die, we pretend nothing has happened. Denial puts off what must be faced and stunts us emotionally if we never move past that into into the place where we deal with God and pain and our life and our experiences in the world as it is. And the reason I choose this metaphor of entering into the darkness is when we enter into those, those, those places in life where it's not all beauty and bright light, The thing that we want to do is to chase the sun. We want to go west. We want to chase the sun. And you know as well as I do, as you try to chase that sun, the further and further it gets away from you. What you have to do is go east into the darkness in order to meet the rising of the sun as a new day dawns. Now, personally, this is is what I have experienced with our grief ministry. For 30 years, I, I... I have entered into the grief of other people. And two years ago, it was time for me to enter into my own grief when my father passed away. And it, 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 it is a significant event in your life. As many of you here know, that when you lose one of the handful of people, the very rare people in the world who love you unconditionally, it, 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 it changes so many things. And so for one year... After uh, our Wednesday night Bible class, Ed Biggers would, would ask me if I wanted to meet for lunch the next day on Thursday. And out of the first 52 weeks after my father had passed away, probably 42 or 43 of those weeks, he and I met at the same time at the same restaurant at the same table. And we'd get our food and we would pray for it. And then he would ask, how are you doing this week? And then he would just listen. And sometimes we talked about uh, uh, grief, and and sometimes we didn't. We'd talk about, you know, well, we would enter into other forms of grief, talking about the cowboys. 
But Ed would just sit there and listen. And, and one of the things that was so important is I always thought that, uh, that, that I was a crier. I mean, the older I get, I mean, you, you, you know, you, I, I watch a Disney movie and I start bawling, you know. And I always wondered uh, and I always just assumed that, that, I would, uh, that I would shed tears when my father passed. And I wondered why that had not happened. And to have somebody with Ed's expertise in grief to be able to say, you can never predict the way that you're going to grieve. The way that you might have grieved when you were 20 is not the way you're going to grieve when you're 50. And to have that person there to answer the questions about grief and to tell me that I was headed in the right direction, well, I discovered that I did not need so much a schematic and, and I'm not downplaying the importance of schematics. But what I really needed was a guide and a companion in suffering. The grief ministry of our church offers the companions in suffering who guide you east through the darkness to the rising of the sun of a new day. And they are the ones who are with you in that time of darkness as you go through that valley, as you go through those, those grief-filled moments. And they are the ones who are there with you on that day when after so much darkness, your eyes begin to blink at the glare of the greatness of the light as it dawns in your life. You enter into that darkness. And there are lessons to learn in suffering. Two that I've learned are these. Groans are language enough for God. We pray and we, we strive for so much eloquence and so, so great articulation of, of thought and theology and Scripture. And then you're hit in the head with an event in your life like a, like a two-by-four, and you realize that you don't have words. And you realize that you really don't have much knowledge either. Really, all you have are gasps and groans. And groans and gasps. But one of the great promises of God's Word is that groans are language enough for God. And number two, and there, there's lots of these lessons, but I'll give you two just because our time is limited. One of the other things is that there is indeed meaning in suffering. There is meaning in suffering. When you walk with God, you begin to see that suffering will not destroy you. On the contrary, a better version of you comes forth like coal, comes out, you know, is transformed through the suffering into a diamond. And you find yourself more sensitive to people and to their pain. You discover the world with which you identify with. It's either the world as it is, fallen, or you discover the world that you identify with is the world to come in which there are no tears. You discover the truth of God's promises. You discover the nearness of God as never before. Or you say it as Job would say it. My ears had heard of you. 
but now my eyes have seen you. You know, Job is, 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 is such a tremendous story, and, and people talk uh, from time to time about the, the depth and the significance and the profoundness of, 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 the, of the suffering, of the, the catastrophe that comes into his life. And lots of people say, well, it can never be real because, I mean, that happening to one person, all you have to do, quite frankly, is to listen to any recent news report or read any recent newspaper and to see that that kind of stuff happens all over the world every day. And one of the things that Job teaches us is that you can go through suffering and discover God's nearness and God's greatness and God's love and God's compassion and God's, God's preeminent grace in your life. But Job also points us to a greater Job who not only went through that suffering, that went through the other side of us in order to bring us permanently and eternally to God. One of the things that Scripture talks about over and over and over again, and we just gloss over because we get right to the cross, is that Jesus suffered for our sins. He suffered for our sins. He went through that suffering because of, of, of the grief that He felt in his own heart because of the sin that separated us. But he went through that suffering, he went through the other side of it in order to bring us forever and ever and ever the presence of God in our life. But it's time for us to sing another song. And our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And perhaps uh, you've been struggling with some kind of grief in your life and you want the church to be praying for you and we want to introduce you to Ed. Or it might be that for the first time in your life you realize that suffering does have a meaning. That through the suffering of the Christ you have life. And not just, not just biological life of just breathing and eating and living and working and spending money and, and pleasure, but eternal life. Life that is abundant. Life that has significance. Life that has purpose. Life that is connected to God. And you want to make that real as well in your life. Well, these shepherds can tell you how that can be done. We want you to come forward and to talk to them as we praise God together. Let's stand and sing. The splendor of a king, clothed in majesty.